My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, this is going to be a new series of shows in which I revisit a relatively contemporary film and share my thoughts and opinions on them. And this first episode is going to be on Zack Snyder's Watchmen. The comic book genre has gone through many highs and lows. The original Batman film spiralled into gaudy neon pantomimes, complete with American Express references, and one eye fixed firmly on the amount of Happy Meals that could be sold. The arrival of the X-Men franchise showed some promise before Brett Ratner was let loose on The Last Stand, followed by the laughable X-Men Origins Wolverine. Although massive box office hits, films like these proved highly divisive with audiences. Some would argue they are supposed to be enjoyed purely on a superficial basis, with comments like, you should just leave your brain at the door, whilst other more learned viewers cried foul that their favourite franchises were ruined by lazy storytelling, poor direction and idiotic characterisations. Critics also seem to have a rather dismissive attitude to the merits of the superhero genre. Often simply it seems focusing on the word comic and drawing an incorrect assertion that this was meant to mean light and fluffy. In particular I recall The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw giving a glowing review to the Fantastic Four, claiming it was a perfect example of what the genre should be. Clearly, and in typically contrarian fashion, Bradshaw was either doing his usual go-against-the-grain review or had completely failed to ever read a graphic novel. Of course, Christopher Nolan has given us the rebooted Batman series, injecting a much-needed edge to the genre, leading to Oscar recognition and a re-evaluation of what the superhero films could be. For anyone familiar with works such as The Dark Knight Returns or Batman Year One, the more cerebral and darker tone of Batman Begins would have been nothing new. Of course, studios were quick to jump into this new trend for more adult-orientated superhero films. We've had a raft of truly awful efforts such as Ghost Rider missing the mark entirely. For many comic book fans, there was one very notable omission from the wave of superhero films, and one that Hollywood had been trying to make for many years. In 1986, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons wrote a graphic novel that was recognised by fans in the literary establishment as not only one of the great examples of its kind, but one of the most important pieces of narrative fiction ever written, alongside likes of War and Peace and Wuthering Heights. Of course the novel was Watchmen set in an alternative reality in 1985 where President Nixon's finger hovers above the button to begin nuclear war against Russia, its characters are a group of retired superheroes, shunned by society and outlawed by the establishment, struggling to come to terms with their enforced retirement and integration into society. Unlike its peers, Watchmen did not have a long line of series and spin-offs. 
It was a one-off novel that explored the psychological and sociological reasons why people decided to don an outfit and fight crime. Its characters are a mixture of psychopaths, mercenaries, geeks, billionaires and a god. Not only are its characters not exactly the usual superhero type, the book itself is quite radical in its execution. Within the traditional panes of the comic book, there are extracts from other comics and books as well as reports from psychologists all building and expanding on the Watchmen universe. More importantly, the novel explored perhaps more than any other its type why these people wanted to become superheroes. It has all the elements we all know and love about the genre, alter egos, costumes, villains, gadgets and a healthy dose of violence. It was also labelled unfilmable. It's a tag that is often levied against source material that is for want of a better word, difficult. There have been many novels that have made the transition to screen despite their apparent unfilmability. Perfume, Forrest Gump are to name but a few. The issue isn't whether or not they can actually be made, it's whether or not could actually make a decent film out of them. Watchmen fans were in a state of high alert every time it was announced that an attempt was going to be made to bring it to the big screen. Part of this long term journey to screen was in my opinion anyway because Watchmen could not have been made until the evolution of special effects allowed for the creation like Dot's Manhattan, not just to be a man in a suit surrounded by blue. When word began to circulate that Zack Snyder was going to take over the reins of bringing the film to the big screen, the reaction was mixed to say the least. Born in 1966, Snyder was a prolific commercials and music director before making his feature film debut in 2004 with a remake of Dawn of the Dead. Considered sacrilege by many to even consider touching such a beloved property, the film was actually for me anyway quite a big surprise. I personally loved it. Its kinetic energy and vicious sense of humour along with a pleasingly bleak ending was a welcome tonic from the traditional remake stable that insists that all good from the original be toned down for the multiplex crowd. Some might say zombies don't run. I say they don't exist and running ones are far scarier than plodding ones anyway. His 2006 comic book adaption of 300 divided in critics and audiences but proved a massive box office success. In particular the film's visual style came in for a great deal of criticism as much as it did praise. Some found the undercranking and fantastical elements of the film to be ridiculous, forgetting perhaps that 300 was not adapted from historical material but a comic, and had no intention on trying to be accurate given the actual historical evidence is patchy at best. Although I personally found the film's style at times to be a little distracting and lacking in character department, I did enjoy 300 on the basis I had never really seen anything like it before. Not being familiar with the source material, I cannot comment on its faithfulness. But from a purely cinematic point of view, the imagery was at times utterly stunning in particular, King Xerxes and his entrance was a wonder of costume, performance and special effects. When it was announced that Snyder would be helming Watchmen, I was actually quite enthused. There were some murmurs of discontent as was to be expected, but the simple fact for me, he is a director who had a style that I enjoyed over the sheer banality of his peers such as the aforementioned Brett Ratner or someone like Tim Story. Snyder was also, crucially, a massive fan of Watchmen and understood the need for the film to honour the source material, although crucially give himself the freedom to adapt where needed. It is the adaption part that often sends fans into a spin. A simple change of costume can lead to an internet frenzy of moaning, and before a film is even released, its makers are vilified for not honouring the fans or disrespecting the source material. Studios after it all exists to make money, and of course they're going to want a return on their investment, which is a completely reasonable request for any company. Watchmen though revered does not carry the wide appeal the likes of Spider-Man or Batman. I believe credit must be given to Warner Brothers for backing the project and allowing it to be made as an R-rated property. Many studios would balk at such a bold project, however the support and faith shown in Snyder was actually quite refreshing. The biggest stumbling block for the film however would be an issue of rights. 
Originally, Joel Silver acquired them in 1986 for 20th Century Fox, who eventually gave up and passed the film to Warner Brothers and Terry Gilliam, who in turn moved the film to Paramount, who again tried to make the film in 2001 with David Hayter, who in turn passed the project to Darren Aronofsky, who left not before Paul Greengast took a shot, and the project eventually being put on hold in 2005. Zack Schneider eventually came on board and armed with Alex A's script and a $130 million budget, began filming in 2007 through to February 2008. Of course, amongst all this was toing and froing, it would only stand to reason that a lawsuit would appear, which it did from 20th Century Fox, who claimed it owned the rights to Watchmen and tried to subsequently block the film from being released. I wonder if a single organisation will ever incur the wrath of film and television fans as 20th Century Fox. Although having turned down the chance to make Watchmen, Fox still received a generous upfront payment and percentage of the worldwide gross and spin-off rights. On top of this, Paramount also received a payment and international distribution rights. Again, hats off to Warner Bros for having the vision, and I for one think Fox should have been forced to use the money to bring back Firefly, but of course, they had many more shows to fund and then cancel instead. The usual list of big names were attached to the roles, but as history has taught us, the superhero does not need A-list names. Hugh Jackman, Christopher Reeve, and even Michael Keaton were all pretty great in their respective roles, and none of them could hardly be called A-list or indeed heard of at all before. Jackie Earl Haley is a revelation as Walter Kovac, or Rorschach. He is the only member of the Watchmen who is from the outset at peace with the fact he is a masked superhero, and indeed it is that, not his alias, that defines him as a person. It is of course the classic inversion of the traditional superhero persona. Batman is first and foremost Bruce Wayne. Rorschach is Walter Kovacs, and Earl's performance perfectly encapsulates the rage he feels towards society and his comrades' treatment. His journal is also used as a narrative device throughout the film to progress the central mystery. His as black as night sense of humour and above all incredible voice acting by Haley make Rorschach leap off the page into one of the most colourful and controversial superheroes ever to be put to screen. Superman was indeed the man of steel, you know even his abilities can come close to that of Dr John Osterman or Dr Manhattan as he has become after an accident whilst working on a scientific project. Billy Crudup was cast in the role of the monosyllabic blue superhuman. Keanu Reeves had expressed interest in the role, which would seem fitting given the lack of emotion shown by Dr. Mahan, but even a blank state needs character to which Crudot is able to inject into the role. Dr. Manhattan is capable of virtually anything and has the ability to see time non-chronologically, much to the irritation of girlfriend Laurie. I think he is also part of the humour of Gibbons and Moore. They create a character who is capable of doing anything he wants, yet for the most part does absolutely nothing. Marlon Ackerman plays Laurie of Silk Spectre 2, and unbeknownst to her, the daughter of the comedian. Ackerman is in my mind a little short-changed in the film. Some of the film's more clunky offerings come from her, and I'm not sure whether its extent is her as shortcomings as an actor, or the screenplay that is the problem. By far my favourite performance is Patrick Wilson as Daniel Drayberg, or Night Owl 2. Drayberg is very much the technological brains behind the group constructing the equipment, and also has an underground lair built under his house. What I love about his character is how unassumingly nice he is to be with a goofy charm that is hard not to like. Drayberg and Rorschach are also in their own way the most well-meaning of the group, believing that justice needs to be upheld and those responsible for their deeds punished. Although Rorschach has a slightly more extreme method of punishment, he and Drayberg do appear to generally believe what they're doing is right, and in their own way, very good friends. Edward Blake or the comedian, both member of the original Minutemen and later Watchmen, is played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who actually reminds me of a young Powers Booth and delivers a performance that manages the rare feat of making a fairly despicable person strangely likeable. No matter how hard I try and despite plenty of reasons to, the comedian has too much charisma and a fatalistic outlook on life that is really hard not to dislike. 
Morgan is also totally convincingly wrong, playing the various ages we see throughout the film. Matthew Good plays Adrian Vine, or Osmandias, the billionaire genius who has turned Watchmen into a global brand. In the early part of the last century, the American entrepreneur was renowned for acquiring huge wealth and through great acts of philanthropy giving their wealth to the citizens of the country. Fight follows in this tradition, except his gift in typical comic book fashion is far greater in scale, world peace. He's not the typical bad guy and Good's performance perfectly encapsulates the cold logic of the character, but I do think he is perhaps one of the most underdeveloped and poorly presented in the entire film. Horace Mason, or the first night owl played by Stephen Mahatty, was a far greater role in the novel which includes segments of his expose, Under the Hood, his memoirs on life as a Minuteman. The novel within a novel is one of my favourite aspects of the Watchmen universe. Reading like a pulpy detective story is a fantastic origin story of why the Martyrio superheroes came to be. Although not as prominent in the film, a mockumentary and Under the Hood is available with the Tales of Black Freighter animated film that we'll talk about later. The only other surviving Minuteman is Sally Jupiter, or the first Silk Spectre, played by Carlo Giugino. The character is one of the more tragic, living on the memories of her past glories, the former sex symbol is now living in a retirement village, sifting through old fan mail, some of which is even pornographic, lamenting the loss of her true love, the comedian. The film and novel's narrative structure is non-linear, with the character's backstories told in a variety of flashbacks throughout the history of the Minutemen and Watchmen. In the 70s, the Keen Act has been introduced, banning masked superheroes from fighting crime, forcing the Watchmen underground or into retirement. In the present, the world holds its breath, as the United States and Soviet Union engage in a standoff that may at any minute result in nuclear war. The film begins with the murder of the retired Edward Blake, sitting alone in an apartment by a master assailant, and what follows is a basic detective story, with Rorschach trying to solve the central mystery. Meanwhile, Docs Manhattan and Vine work on an alternative energy source that will negate the need for war, saving the world from destruction. Laurie, who has become increasingly fed up with her relationship with Manhattan's distant attitude and apathy towards life, eventually leaves him and seeks solace with Dreyberg. Rorschach's investigation leads into Morlock, former nemesis of the Watchmen and now apparent confidant of the comedian. Double-crossed, Rorschach is arrested on charges of murder. Dr Manhattan is accused on live television of causing the cancer of his former lover, leading him to leave Earth entirely for the surface of Mars, effectively allowing nuclear war to take place. Meanwhile, Dreyberg and Laurie begin a romance that leads to the eventual rebirth of the Watchmen and rescue of Rorschach from prison. In a random act of violence, Horace is killed by a gang of thugs in his own home, and on Mars, Manhattan takes Laurie to see his new creation, a vast crystal palace. Desperately trying to convince Manhattan that humanity is worth saving, Laurie is confronted with a dark secret from her past that eventually leads Manhattan to see the good in man and return to Earth to help humanity. On Earth, Dreyberg and Rorschach make an amazing discovery leading them to realise that the forces behind all the death and arrest is one of their own. One of my fears for the film adaption was that more emphasis would be placed on the present murder mystery with more set pieces and villains. To have done so would have been, in my opinion, a form of cultural vandalism. If we were to play studio producers for a minute, there would have been a temptation to turn Watchmen into a series. You could imagine the story of the Minutemen being the first, the second being the Watchmen up until the Keen Act enforcement, and the concluding part being the story of the comedian's death and the second coming of the Watchmen. From a screenwriting perspective, I would imagine this would have been easier than just making a single film incorporating all these story elements. Although interconnecting, each flashback thread does have its own individual narrative structure through various different points in history. Neither format does not change throughout the film, but is key to understanding why the characters are the way they are. Last year I watched Antonioni's Laventura. 
It was definitely an eye-opener for me because it made me reconsider what I thought about narrative cinema. We are so accustomed to seeing three-act structures with a clear beginning, middle and end, with characters who fill simplistic narrative needs. Films like Laventure don't operate in this arena. Its purpose is not necessary to tell an engaging A to B story, moreover they are more interested in exploring the personal relationship between characters. Rhythmically, therefore, it can be hard to get into such films with the apparent shifts in narrative occurring. In adapting a novel like Watchmen for the screen, Zack Snyder must have been faced with quite a dilemma. In effect, the film was already storyboarded for him on the pages and therefore potentially making many of his creative decisions for him. It is a credit to Snyder that I think he is able to inject so much of these stylistic sensibilities into the film. Watchmen does not feel like a paint-by-numbers trawl through the novel, which is, to me anyway, a good thing, especially how interesting Snyder's style is. Many scenes begin with the camera slowly tracking back from an object to a picture that forms part of the overall Watchmen universe, into the characters talking. It is a fairly simple thing to do, but is repeated throughout. Often dialogue at the beginning of a track is fairly non-essential before the main meat of the conversation comes in when the camera movement ends. It is actually a technique I saw in Ridley Scott's The Duelist with slow zooms into a scene, resisting the urge to simply stick to a shot-reverse shot structure. Snyder constantly makes us aware of the world and mythology of the film. Snyder clearly revels in creating the superhero universe. He immerses the characters in the world around them, most noting the scenes between Laurie and Dan in these underground layers. Snyder introduces this subterranean world with a low angle shot from the bottom, making full use of the widescreen frame. In keeping with the more grounded reality of the Watchmen, the workshop itself is very much as a focus on the practical, not the fantastical. Laurie and Dan flirt in the lair, trying on night vision goggles and accidentally setting off flamethrowers. These aren't the sleek and superhuman heroes we are used to, and crucially Snyder doesn't mock them, rather he makes them more identifiable with the real world around us. When Laurie speaks to her mother in a retirement village, she has none of the wealth we would associate with a former superhero. For all its fantastical elements, I think Schneider perfectly understands why it's important not to overly glamorise the characters and their surroundings, showing their domestication and assimilation into society. He shoots these types of scenes in a mixture of close-ups and wide shots, with the relationship with dialogue and image conflicting with the characters' inner desire to go back to the old days of being masked heroes. The conversation between characters is normally about the good old days of the Watchmen and their celebrity. Now, however, life is far more mundane, reflected in a nondescript urban existence. I don't, feel, I don't think Zyden mocks this existence, moreover I believe he is showing us no matter how hard these people try, they will never just be normal citizens. Indeed, being a Watchman is to them the same as being a postman or any other profession. Laurie? Is that you? Thought you'd be used to traveling that way by now. Well, I'm not. I hate it when John teleports me. Well, he beats flying coach. Margarita? Mother, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> mm. Remember that guy that writes me letters? He sent me an item of memorabilia. It's a Tijuana Bible. It's a little eight-page porno comic they did in the 30s and 40s. He sent you this? Sure, they're very valuable, like antiques. Mother, this is gross. Well, I think it's kind of flattering. Why do you always call me mother when you're mad? I know why you're here. I can still read, you know. I saw it in the paper. Eddie Blake's funeral is today. Finally got his punchline, I guess. Poor Eddie. Poor Eddie after what he did to you? <laughs> Lori, you're still young. You don't know. Things changed. What happened, happened 40 years ago. 
I'm 67 years old. Every day, the future looks a little bit darker. But the past, even the grimy parts of it, keep on getting brighter. When Horace is attacked in his home by a gang of thugs, he fights back, but the face of the thugs changes to villains of his past. I may be clutching at straws, but I have the feeling there's a statement being made about violence in society. In Rorschach's narration, he often sounds like Travis Bickle sermonising on the fall of urban America. Horace's heyday was a time when the bad guys were easily identifiable. Now danger has multiplied to street gangs and random acts of violence perpetrated by the disaffected individuals. Despite the heroic attempt, Horace is battered to death. Like all mortals, his body cannot take the amount of punishment dispensed. Although superhero, he is not superhuman after all. Indeed, one of the appeals of the superhero genre is that they and their abilities offer perfect escapism. The Watchmen don't only have lives that are more than identifiable to our own, but are actually pretty crap. Other than Dr. Manhattan, they don't really have any superpowers either, other than they are good at fighting. In that respect, Watchmen is the anti-superhero film. We don't want to be these people, moreover we are inclined to relate to them, creating a dynamic that is to me anyway, not replicated to such a degree in many of the genre's other offerings. Zyder's roots in music video direction is clearly reflected in the film's editing. Many of the scenes take place clearly constructed around certain pieces of music, often with wildly different pacing and shot structures. I'm not entirely sure how I actually feel about this. On the one hand, it allows for a great deal of time and multitude of events to be shown during the various montages. In the film's three hour running time, there is a massive amount of story and backstory told, perhaps even too much for only three hours of cinema. The drawback of this is I often film Watchmen films like a collection of vignettes that are too self-contained in their own right. Of course, this isn't in the spirit of the novel, but in execution I think Snyder seems a little too obsessed with making songs and images fit, and he does really explore in why we should be invested with the characters. There are many scenes that simply feel like exposition without really adding much to the characters. I actually think these types of moments are more for people new to the Watchmen, as opposed to the more die-hard fans. In terms of pacing, Watchmen is all over the place. Again, I think it's important not to see Watchmen as a conventional superhero film, and often the cinematic language of scenes differs greatly. Often you will see rapid edits such as during the film's opening sequence with the comedian to way more reflective slower paced moments such as the origin story of Dr Manhattan. All you need to see is, is the scene during which the comedian is being buried. The funeral is used as a narrative device to show the character's relations to him and add backstory to their own arcs. Each character's story may as well be technically from a separate film. I can understand why to some this may be frustrating, but to me it kind of feeds back into the whole notion of The Watchmen is not a typical piece of narrative cinema and is not bound by the same safe, self-imposed conventions of films of a similar ilk. What I do like is the way certain scenes transition from one to the next. Clearly a fan of the match cut, Snyder often begins a scene in a different location that perfectly replicates the closing moment of a last. For anyone interested in this type of transition, I would suggest watching some of David Lean's films and the way he used sound to cut from one scene to the next. One aspect I cannot abide, however, is the way in which Snyder cuts between two different scenes simultaneously. The, the worst offence of which was when Laurie and Daniel fight a gang in the alleyway, whilst Dr Manhattan is being grilled on live television. This is the first time we get to see any of the Watchmen in action, yet rather than being able to see this we have to keep cutting back to the Manhattan storyline. Both scenes are important in their own right, yet the fight scene suffers just because as soon as it gets interesting we cut back to a far slower paced moment and back again. I can't stand this kind of cross-cutting and one of the worst offenders being the Phantom Menace during the final battle. In one moment we have an incredible lightsaber fight and next we have an idiotic floppy-eared moron fighting the most useless robots ever created. Cinematographer Larry Fong was charged with the challenge of shooting Watchmen and when you see his filmography you can perfectly understand why it was chosen. 
A veteran of many music videos and most notably Lost, Fong creates a diverse visual palette that perfectly complements the film's varied locales and time and period. The natural aspect ratio of the film at The Watchman is in my mind the 2351 frame. The sheer width of this frame is often problematic for some directors and DPs, with much of the screen being used redundantly, neither adding the story or adding anything to the overall aesthetic of the film. Watchman's frame however is well utilised throughout and demonstrates many different visual styles within its narrative. In the present storyline the film takes place almost entirely at night and in keeping with the storyline has a heavily noir influence with deep blacks and piercing neon lights. It's easy to wax lyrical about the quality of the film having seen it many times on Blu-ray but what does strike me about is how sharply defined everything is. For the most part you can always see a great deal of depth to the image and everything in the foreground and background and focused. With a film so dense in design it can almost be slightly distracting at times as more often not you notice elements from the novel such as copies of underneath the hood or some other such detail. Although dark in the present, the flashbacks take place in the 40s and 50s and are brighter, almost parodying the rather twee and wholesome images we have of that time. Of course, this is perfectly in keeping with the thematic element of The Watchmen. Let's not forget the film's opening, we see the demise of the several Minutemen in a variety of gruesome ways. Although an alternative reality, it still very much includes recognisable prejudices. The image has a rather grainy texture to it, especially during the sequences filmed in the present, giving an almost dirty appearance, which is of course perfectly complements Rorschach's rather misanthropic monologues. Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Dire tread on burst stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And I'll whisper, No. Good CGI should, when necessary, never draw attention to itself. It should expand on and complement the world and the story being told. Watchmen has in almost every shot an effect. Of course, it's quite easy to see in the case of Dr. Manhattan but many of the film's best effects will go completely unnoticed. During the many flashback sequences, Snyder actually used effects to make the character's eyes more prominent under the masks, as he felt otherwise the Watchmen would seem too sinister. Without knowing, you would never really be able to tell, which is of course the whole point as far as I'm concerned. CGI is also used to expand shots. At the comedian's funeral, only a fraction of the screen is real, with the rest added in later. It's these types of shots that impress me the most. Of course, it's notable that some of the larger set pieces would need bigger effect sequences, such as the Crystal Fortress floating across Mars, but Snyder, is, in my opinion, gets the balance right between the epic and the subtle. Another particular favourite touch is the particles floating around Dr. Manhattan, who is in general a hugely impressive creation. The first and most obvious issue is the fact that Manhattan walks around naked, with quite frankly his dick hanging out. In the graphic novel, his manhood is always hidden by an object or something in the foreground. From a directorial point of view, to show him not fully nude would make the film veer into a kind of Austin Powers type farce and also severely restrict the shots Snyder was able to accomplish. Therefore, Dr. Manhattan in all his glory is seen throughout. It's amazing to me how many people react to the nudity despite the fact that unless they are blind or go by their daily necessities in complete darkness, it's a fairly regular occurrence for us all to see ourselves completely naked. Again, I've read some people who have real problems with Dr. Manhattan for this very reason, even going as far as to say it deviates too far from the novel that clearly used nudity for comedic effect with ever increasingly more inventive ways of covering it. Firstly, the film would not work, it was only composed of static shots throughout, as in the style I mentioned before with Austin Powers type coverage. Secondly, so what if it was used for comedic effect in the novel, even if this was intended or not? 
because it's again an adaption from a purely filmmaking point of view it would become distracting to the point of irritating if Snyder was constantly trying to cover it. Overall I think the film has a great practicality to it. Although large amounts of CGI are present it still relies on set and miniatures giving it a tangibility that is often lacking from many modern blockbusters all of which give the film a longevity that most films that are water wall CGI simply do not have. Is that you? Nations around the world still reeling from this morning's announcement, possibly the most significant event in recent history. We repeat, the Superman exists, and he is American. They call me Dr. Manhattan. They explain the name has been chosen for the ominous associations it will raise in America's enemies. The marketing boys say I need a logo. If I'm to have a symbol, it shall be one I respect. There are a few pieces of music that are so intrinsically linked to a film it's impossible not to separate the two. Riders of Valkyries and Apocalypse Now are one such combination and having a Vietnam sequence in your film and using that piece of music can only make you think of Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece. Watchmen is set in an alternative reality in which America has won the Vietnam War with the help of Dr Manhattan. In one sequence Manhattan is flanked by a squadron of helicopters attacking a group of Vietnamese soldiers whilst the infamous music blares out. It is a real love it or hate it moment and I have read many disparaging reviews of the sequence accusing Snyder of crudely trying to replicate Francis Ford Coppola making a lazy directorial choice. I believe that such dissension comes from the fact that too often mockery comes in the form of simply directly referencing modern popular culture. Films such as Vampire Suck, which I'm proud to say I've never seen seem to think that if they simply look like the object of their mockery i.e. Twilight and throw in a character who looks like Lady Gaga and mimic the dialogue people will find it funny. This is a cheap and easy form of humour that says absolutely nothing about anything and should be related in the same way Zyder's uses Ride of the Valkyries in Watchmen. Ride of the Valkyries was not written for Apocalypse Now it was more of a genius choice than a masterstroke of audio visual editing. Its connotations with military might and triumphalism are in stark contrast to the reality of the real Vietnam War. It was of course a resounding defeat for America that deeply scarred a generation. In the context of popular culture it is unmistakably associated with Coppola's film. Indeed I think it's a type of fanboy reference that all filmmakers do. Subtle perhaps not, but evocative yes. In Watchmen, America wins. Dr Manhattan destroys all before him with the simple raising of a hand. In this instance the music perfectly encapsulates the actual triumph. And of course we cannot but help think about Apocalypse now. Yet I think we do so with a kind of ironic sense of humour. I also think the playful nod to other films is completely in keeping with the tone of the book. Watchmen characters are amalgamations of other existing creations. The comedian has the anarchic sensibilities of the Joker, yet is hired as a soldier of fortune by the corrupt powers that be. Night Owl more than echoes Bruce Wayne with his financial clout and technological prowess, and indeed the Minutemen segments echo the early adventures of Batman, especially during the World War II years. Dr Manhattan is Superman with a complete apathy towards human life. Unlike the Man of Steel, he will happily stand back and watch the world around him destroy itself. Snyder referencing other such iconic films is therefore wholly justified, yet it's not the only source of controversy with regards to the musical choices in the film. Other notable tracks include Jimi Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and Nat King Cole's Unforgettable during the opening fight scene. 
in the case of Unforgettable, it actually works as a fitting epitaph to the comedian, who we later discover has a, led such a controversial life. Its tender lyrics stand in contrast to what we see, which fits the character so well. All Along the Watchtower is a slightly overused song in film, but the origin of its inclusion are found on the pages of The Watchman. At the end of each chapter in the bottom corner, lyrics from songs can be found, including All Along the Watchtower. Although not specifying which version, Hendrix's cover has always been my favourite. Perhaps it's overused, but when accompanied by a huge smiling symbol on the surface of Mars, I defy anyone not to nod their approval before the film's final showdown. Philip Glass's music from Cole Anastasi has a melancholy beauty to it, along with Manhattan's narration during the vignette showing his how he came to be. Manhattan is a godlike figure, and the use of the organ does emote a reverential feeling toward him. My favourite piece in the film comes during the Watchmen's opening sequence. Bob Dylan's These Times Are a Changing plays over a montage that perfectly establishes the world the film operates in. You know, the gay banks away from Hiroshima, only in the instance it's the silk spectre that adorns the side of the plane. Siderette kisses her lesbian girlfriend, an image like for like the same as one taken on VJ Day. Looking into the image, you can see the looks of disgust on the face of the onlookers. The opening hints at a better future, but very quickly we begin to realise the world of the Watchmen is far from it. The Minutemen come and go, followed by the Watchmen, who are themselves made as illegal as the people they catch. All of course perfectly in keeping with Deeran's lyrics, and I can't believe that the context of these shots was not composed with them directly in mind. I may well be off, but during the montage I'm sure we see superheroes stopping the killing of Bruce Wayne's mother and father. If intentional, then it's a kind of a nod that I for one really enjoy. If I was to criticise Snyder though, I do think he relies on the musical montage a little too much. The aforementioned Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah moment takes place during the sex scene between Dan and Laurie. For the most part I hate sex scenes, and this one in particular goes on way longer than needed, and is in my mind somewhat self-indulgent on the part of Snyder. Perhaps he was a little too in love with the song to objectively assess whether or not the scene was working. Of course the music does have an irony to it given Dan's rather poor performance earlier in the film, however the joke soon wears thin, especially when we have the symbolic streak of fire shooting out of the hovercraft. Some have derided the excessive amount of music in the film, and I know many who hate the soundtrack choice, especially the likes of 99 Red Balloons. In this respect I actually think the inclusion of so much music is really as much of the adaption process as it is directorial whim. Effective or not, is clearly a necessary component of the Watchmen universe. Where I think the film's music does fall a little short is the original score. The age of the big theme seems to be on the wane, and Tyler Bates' work seems more about atmosphere, and in my opinion rather lacks any personality. Although it does serve the need by creating atmosphere, I still think at times simply too nondescript and generic to really elevate itself from anything more than extremely average. The costume traditionally serves the purpose of being emblematic in the superhero universe. 
Superman's S or the bat sign across Batman's chest. Of course the Watchmen have the smiley face but individually they are very different. I'm often a little surprised by the costumes that superheroes are adorned with in films, wondering what purpose they actually serve in adding to the character. Nighthawk in particular looks massively uncomfortable in his. He seems to be very limited in his movement and can't seem to move his neck properly. I wonder what type of tactical advantage he gains from it, especially when you look at Rorschach and Laurie, who are able to move far easier without them. It may sound like a minor quibble, but I do think it is often an overlooked element in many superhero films. Again referencing Christopher Nolan's Batman's film, I think the costume and its origin have a natural form of development in line with the character's experiences. The comedian's armour looks as if it has a practical purpose. The armoured shoulder pads and webbing actually looks like it adds value to what he does. By far the worst choice and indeed for one of the most undeveloped characters in the film is Vidit or Osmandias. His outfit is ludicrous quite frankly and given how little we know about the character it seems more like an afterthought. Apparently Schneider wanted it to echo the Batman and Robin films and if true then he certainly succeeds but why would you ever want to reference a film like that in the first place? The film's art direction is also one of the most impressive I've seen in a long time. Make no mistake, Watchmen is a period piece in the very traditional sense of the word and included on the walls you'll see lots of political graffiti. New York in the film is very much a city on the decline and all you need to do is look at the wall to see the very public discontent with the Nixon government. His image is often defaced with offensive daubing changing the message of the posters far from their original meaning. Being quite a dark film in nature it's quite easy to overlook these types of elements but if you want to delve into the film more there is much to discover by having a glance at the walls around the action. Vidit models himself on Egyptian pharaohs and the iconography of this period can be seen throughout. His office contains artefacts and of course his snow lair is clearly an old Egyptian site. We can also identify with other iconic films in the environments. Snyder is clearly a fan of Doctor Strangelove in Nixon's War Room and I cannot help recall Dave's final resting place at the end of 2001 in Laurie and Dr Manhattan's bedroom. If I were to liken the film's overall aesthetic to one in particular it would have to be Taxi Driver and indeed there is more than a hint of the unhinged menage of Travis Bickle and Rorschach. I would say the film has a very grounded look and picture postcard it is not. The city has a feel to it that is that this is the type of place that if for those with criminal persuasions they can easily disappear into it. It might not be pretty but it's highly emotive of the film's decaying ideology. Rorschach's journal, October 16th. Thought about Moloch's story. Could all be lies. A revenge scheme. Planned during his years behind bars. But if it's true, what could have possibly scared the comedian enough to cry in front of Moloch? What was it he saw? And that list he mentioned. Edward Blake, the comedian, born 1918. Buried in the rain. Murdered. Is that what happens to us? No time for friends. Only our enemies leave roses. Violent lives ending violently. Blake understood. Humans are savage in nature. No matter how much you try to dress it up. To disguise it. Blake saw society's true face, chose to be a parody of it, a joke. I heard joke once. Man goes to doctor, says he's depressed. Life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in threatening world. Doctor says treatment is simple. The great clown Pagliacci is in town. Go see him. 
That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. But doctor, he says, I am Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Roll on snare drum. One source of irritation amongst fans was the film's ending. Of course, a central plot element of Light attempting to bring about world peace through superpower unity is maintained, but crucially the method used to attain this differs greatly from novel to film. As sacrilegious as it sounds, I actually prefer the film's ending over the novel for reasons I should explain further. The novel ends with Light faking an alien invasion of the world, destroying New York in the process. The threat of further invasion forces the Soviet Union and the United States to put aside their differences and begin again in a new age of cooperation and peace. In the film, Vite frames Dr. Manhattan by setting off a bomb in New York that appears to have been caused by the Doctor. In both novel and film, Dr. Manhattan leaves Earth, yet in the film it is more necessity, although his reason for doing so in both cases is because he wants to leave, believing there's nothing more on Earth for him. Just because the novel has a giant squid at the end as opposed to Dr. Manhattan being framed for the attack does not necessarily mean the novel's ending is better. It always felt slightly out of place to me. Of course, the setting is an alternative reality and therefore anything goes, and perhaps it would take such an existential event to unite such bitterly opposed enemies. However, the power of Dr. Manhattan is such that he would be able to be more than a match for both the superpowers. I also wonder if the audience would have accepted the image of a squid-like creature all over Manhattan without mocking it. We can cite this as being more true to the source material and paying respect to the fans, but we have to remember that Watchmen is a major studio film, and in a world where word of mouth can kill a film in its second week, I believe the original ending would have been far more divisive in the eyes of audience who are not fully familiar with the material. Watchmen does not have a strong central narrative thread. It is far more character study than it is mystery, Again, a three-hour melancholic study of existential fears is not likely to wash with the average mall crowd, and therefore come the ending Dr. Manhattan being framed early on in the film actually has a far more meaningful context. It does of course provide a far better reason for him to leave Earth, and indeed makes his exit hold far more emotional weight, given the fact he is sacrificing himself and leaving Laurie the woman he loves. There is nothing more tragic than the band of idiots on the internet proclaiming that George Lucas has stolen their childhood because of a crap Indiana Jones film, or because they hate the Star Wars prequels. If these deluded morons are not doing what they are doing purely for attention, then they are truly the most pointless fan group on earth. However, these self-righteous guard dogs often abandon reason and endlessly complain about the most petty of omissions or indeed additions. Here comes the point where my patience quickly evaporates with such people. Let's take the character of Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings. He is, for those of you who don't know, a kind of nutcase who lives in a forest and appears quite early on in Frodo and Sam's journey. He speaks in rhyme and is able, because of his purity, to wear the ring without any effect whatsoever. Frodo and Sam have dinner with him and move on. I know and have read reports from people who have dismissed the film because it did not include this scene. In the context of the story, I doubt very much if it were not in the novel, it would make any difference whatsoever. The fact that it's not in the film doesn't make the film in any way, shape or form a bad adaption. Moreover, it's key to the process and what these idiots do not understand is the film is a completely different medium to the novel. What works in one may not necessarily work in the other. Because Watchmen was a one-off and because the filmmakers were intent on being as faithful as possible to the original material, it is in many respects both a blessing and a curse. If being completely faithful, it could have been almost used as storyboards, however of course Snyder has his vision to inject into the project. Looking into the panels, you can see a multitude of elements that build the Watchmen universe. It is often these little touches that cause the most outrage when they're not included, or used in a manner which is deemed trivial. Take for example the Sentinels in the X-Men franchise. A potentially huge storyline and indeed exciting prospect is nonchalantly thrown away during a crappy holographic training scene. Looking into the Watchmen, you'll see that Zyder includes many of the little touches that make up the novel and Watchmen universe. When Laurie and Dan are having dinner, you can see in the background a four-legged chicken being served. In Hollis's house, there are spare copies of underneath the hood lying around, and also in Vite's office block. 
We know that Vite has built a vast empire, so we can see Vite-related products dotted around, including aspirin and airships. I personally love these little touches, as for me they always make re-watching the film endlessly rewarding. The film does not take place in our timeline, and elements such as a four-legged chicken and presidents who can stay in office for more than two terms are essential in the view of being able to understand the laws and physics of the world they are seeing. Watchmen does not bog itself down in revering the source material and is not afraid to be something in its own right. The mindset of the ultra-purist appears to be highlighting the difference between novel and film, and then writing off the film because of what it did or did not include. It's a ludicrous critical standpoint to take, however it is one that is often the loudest. I can't stand the smug idiot on the internet or in the pub who informs you that you are wrong for liking the film, when in their mind the book was better. Yet in the case of a property like Watchmen, the film's detractors bear the same kind of self-righteous indignation that the Lucas Stole My Childhood Brigade have. Watchmen film does not cheapen or in any way detract from the incredible achievement the graphic novel is. I would contest it complements it and serves as the source material in a way that never allows itself to be bogged down, ticking a checklist to pander to fans. I can have a see why some may take exception with some of the character choices that are made. In the novel I found the relationship between Laurie and Dr Manhattan to be quite amusing, yet in the film I found Laurie to be very annoying. To what extent this is down to Ackerman I'm not sure, but from a script point of view she does also get some of the clanger lines. By far my biggest disappointment in the film was Vine, quite simply the character is only in the film in essence. In the novel he has a more equal footing with the others, and you get a better sense of him being a worldwide celebrity. In the context of the story the film tells, I didn't sit as a viewer lamenting how little we get to know the character, but as a fan, I was really left wanting more. Thematically, there is much in the Watchmen to dive into, and all you need to do is look at the wealth of material on the subject. Of course only the writers know the true meaning behind their intention, but I always contest that all art is subjective to a point, and in the case of Watchmen, I find myself taking more out of it each time I view it. Watchmen presents a very bittersweet view of the past relationship with the present, when the older characters lament on the good old times of the Minutemen, these moments when we do see them often contradict the affection the characters seem to have for them. Far from being a cohesive fighting unit, the Minutemen are riddled with infighting and in one horrific moment the comedian tries to rape Sally only to be attacked by one of his fellow superheroes. As the flashbacks continue we see how the Watchmen become more and more disillusioned and broken by apathy to the world around them. In the present, they are not wanted or to an extent needed by society. It's a very bleak view of life to think that our past is made of false memory and our present is spent revelling in the fake happiness. The future for the Watchmen is hardly bright either, as those who do survive will also be living in the knowledge that the peace that has been created is one built on a fake event. Indeed, Fight's plan, far from being the typical megalomaniac dream of world domination, is actually brutally effective. In all his cartoon villain glory, we see Nixon preparing with very little in the way of remorse for a possible nuclear war. His ridiculous actions will push the world to the brink, and although Veidt kills many innocent people, he does bring about a peace that will save many, many more. However, the peace Veidt brings about is in essence the same as before, it is one built on fear and of course there is no guarantee that it will last. Veidt's fate is never resolved either and in all likelihood probably returns to his extremely profitable business empire. Watchman therefore has an incredibly faceless view of life, that in the present climate is incredibly pertinent. Take for example the current financial crisis. Banks that caused it were rescued by governments, heads of financial institutions for the most part stayed in their positions and those who did leave were given huge payouts and equally massive pensions on which to retire. In almost all cases government bailouts did not include any share of profits made by banks and in the case of RBS in Britain, zero caps on bonus to employees. It was a global catch-22 situation, if governments allowed banks to go under then millions would lose savings, pensions and homes, leading to great strain on economics and possible civil unrest. But of course it leaves those responsible who in reality got away with what they caused, leading lives that are no doubt far more luxurious than our own, whilst many thousands continue to lose their jobs. It is a bitter pill to swallow, but one that is lesser of two evils. The political subtext of the film also interests me. Written during the Reagan era is a period of time I only remember fleetingly from childhood. 
Those memories however, are dominated with apocalyptic imagery of nuclear weapons in space and terrorists blowing things up. Now as an adult, the Reagan era and legacy comes to be more devices to say the least amongst historians and social commentators. Being set in alternative reality, Richard Nixon has been president for what I recall four terms, as opposed to the normal two. But what would Nixon have been like had he remained in power? And what is being said about the Reagan era of the time? During the Reagan era, the bedrock for the end of the Cold War was laid. Various missile treaties were signed and perhaps a decisive blow came when Reagan took the Cold War into space with the Star Wars project. In Watchmen, the Doomsday Clock, a symbolic representation of man's impending destruction, is set at 1 minute to 12, indicating the precariousness of the situation. The Cold War has not begun to thaw, and Nixon is very much playing the warmonger. Is this perhaps a direct comparison with Reagan? Although the aim was peace, Reagan adopted an aggressive stance against the Soviet Union. It also comes like that on more than one occasion, so was threatened by Western rhetoric, the Soviets actually convinced themselves an attack was imminent. In its contemporary context, therefore, can, can we see this as a barbed critique of Reagan? Nixon, after all, being one of the most universally despised presidents of all time. Perhaps it would have been too on the nose to news Reagan, and instead Nixon serves as a more archetypal type of president with his hawkish Republican rhetoric. You can also see the elements of McCarthyism echoed in the Keene Act, the piece of legislation to outlaw mass heroes. The idea of the enemy being within and among society was the cornerstone of the Senator's ethos. The notion that anyone could be an enemy agent, even those in positions of apparent authority. Rorschach displays similar obsessions with the private life of people in his view, most notably Vite, who he suspects of being a homosexual. The comedian is the only one who continues to work as a soldier of fortune for both the American and foreign governments. His dodgy political allegiances and foreign escapades are clearly reflective of an American involvement in countries such as El Salvador and Guadalajara, where decidedly suspect regimes and movements were backed with little consideration for the moral implications of doing so. In principle, the Watchmen are a morally complex movement themselves. The X-Men fight for the good of humanity, and all the likes of Rorschach punish the more despicable members of society. It is still an anarchic principle to have a group of non-official crime fighters in operation. We often criticise the law for not going far enough, yet without laws it is highly unlikely a natural social equilibrium would occur. In one scene we see Night Owl and the comedian disperse a crowd who attack and jeer them. The comedian nonchalantly takes out a protester whilst Night Owl watches on in horror. I always think back to Bob Dylan's opening song. The times have changed, the enemy is now not as easy identifiable as it had been. The Watchmen have become nothing more than a paramilitary organisation not ordained by mainstream law. Reagan took a notoriously tough stance on striking air traffic controllers, actually firing all 11,000 of them for taking industrial action. Perhaps again it may be a little not too much to compare this world with the real, but the allegorical nature of science fiction and what it hypothesises often promote this kind of exploration. Every time I see the film I'm quite shocked at just how violent it is. In the most graphic scene, Rorschach confronts a paedophile and after him declaring him guilty proceeds to sink a steak knife into his head over and over again. Nothing caused more revulsion society than paedophiles and I rather feel the inclusion makes the right-wing vigilante side of the audience rather admire Rorschach as an exponent of street justice. It is to me a slightly cheap way of eliciting a response from the audience. It's easy to disassociate his true character from the act because we are as a society so vengeful towards such people. Contrast this with the rather brilliant scene in the prison where he returns to kill a goon trapped in the toilet. The door swings back and forth each time revealing him getting closer to his prey. The next thing we see is a flow of blood as he walks out. It's a subtle moment and at times a very unsubtle film, and it's for me the most effective way in conveying the darker side to him. Nothing this fight has ever been seen in a comic book adaption before, and scenes themselves are not exactly fun in the same way as you see in something like Blade. A state knife in the head and arms being sawn off seem more grindhouse in delivery, and are nowhere as brutal as they are in the novel. I'm not sure to what extent Snyder is trying to appeal to the torture porn crowd, but to the more discerning viewer, you could almost call these moments gratuitous.
need for violence. We are trying to retain order on the streets until the police strike is over. Crawl back in your holes before you get hurt. You got rubber bullets. You are not the law. You are regular cops. You are vigilantes. My son's a police officer, you fucking faggots. Damn it, all right, that's how you want to do it? We keep this up. Congress is pushing through some new bill. It's gonna outlaw masks. Our days are numbered. Till then, it's like you always say: we're society's only protection. From what? Are you kidding me? From themselves. Son of a bitch. No, Get your stinking hands off me! What the hell happened to us? What happened to the American dream? What happened to the American dream? It came true. You're looking at it. Watchmen was released on the 8th of March 2009 in North America with a more than respectable $55 million. Its total gross for North America have was 107 million, suggesting a huge drop off in the following weeks. Worldwide, the film eventually took 185 million dollars, which, considering the cost of the promotion, probably made the film something of a failure for the studio. Saying the film struggled to find an audience and perhaps even alienated the fanboys that didn't connect with the average cinema goer. I think the film's lack of box office success can be traced to the types of superhero film that went before. Of course, The Dark Knight was a massive hit, but we can attribute this to the character being more popular and the fact that it was a massively impressive film. Watchmen does not include many of the set pieces that, say, Spider-Man or the X-Men has. Its greatest moments are subtle exchange of dialogue, and apart from Doctor Manhattan, does not have the more fantastical elements to stir the senses. I don't normally pay attention to box office numbers, in fact the whole taking thing actually bores me to death. However, in this case I do think it is indicative of the film's rather limited appeal. The critics' reaction to the film was also quite mixed where some celebrate its reverence of the source material, others derided it for the very same reason. I read many reviews that seemed more interested in the novel than the film. Either way, Watchmen was doomed from the beginning. To stray so far from a novel would alienate, and by being too faithful, the average cinema guy may find it hard to truly penetrate. We are as film fans, of course, used to the double dip. I'm gobsmacked by the fact that on Blu-ray we were getting double dips despite the format's relatively young age. There are times, however, when double dipping is a joy to behold, and for the collectors in this is a central part of our library building. Watchmen was released in America with both a theatrical and director's cut. Scandalously, this was not repeated in Europe, where we had to endure the theatrical cut first, followed by the release of the director's cut sometime later. Part of my not watching the film at cinema was because I knew that the director's cut was planned, and as with Kingdom of Heaven, I didn't want to see a film in its uncompleted form. However, this was not the only thing to be thankful for, as with the director's cut there was also been a separate release of the mockumentary Under the Hood and the animated tales of the Black Freighter and an ultimate condition that consisted of both director's cut 
and Tales of the Black Freighter edited together. This edition is not available in Europe, but having seen it, I think it's worth mentioning more in detail. The concept of a novel within a novel is not new to literature. 1984 used a similar device, and in Watchmen we have a comic book within a comic book. The tales of the Black Friday being read by a young boy next to a newsstand. Sometimes during the course of the novel, panels from it come in place of the main Watchmen storyline, or just lines of dialogue over the main panels. The story is that of a shipwrecked sailor determined to get back to his wife and child. It's a horrifically gory story complete with a life rave made by binding the bodies of decomposing sailors together and the heads of various people being smashed to pieces. It's designed to be a parallel echoing the fall of a vine. I actually prefer to view it independently as the ultimate cut does feel a little too long and reality does not really gain anything more by including it other than running time. For anyone sitting on the fence about Blu-ray, I implore you to take the plunge as Watchmen is one of the most finest discs to have come on the format. The transfer to high definition keeps intact the film's grainy appearance, it is also incredibly sharp and defined. Complementing this is a blistering Dolby True HD soundtrack that is a treat for the ears without ever descending into deafening noise. Another interesting addition to the Watchmen on Home video is the complete novel in an animated comic book form. This works by the camera zooming over the panels with the characters voiced by actors. It's a fresh way of going back and looking at the novel. I personally would rather just read it again, but you can pick this up for less than £3 and it's well worth checking out as for a curiosity factor alone. Watchmen in its purest sense could not be made into a feature film. Perhaps it's more natural how it would be the mini-series or an animated film that was 100% true to the novel. In trying to get the film under three hours, Snyder in my opinion did it was the best adaption that I could ever imagine. Yes, the pacing of the film chops and changes, but this is absolutely necessary in telling the story in a faithful way. By imposing normal cinematic conventions on the film, you are bound not to enjoy it. Likewise, if you are a die-hard fan of the novel, it would be impossible to enjoy the film if you simply list what is missing from it. I consider it to be one of the best comic book movies ever made, and we should be thankful that Snyder and Warner Brothers were able to make the film the way they saw fit. That being said, I feel this is the definitive Watchmen film. For me, it doesn't have to be made again, and yes, you complain that it lacks certain scenes and nuances from the novel, but what adaption doesn't have to make these type of compromises? Indeed, with the love and care that Snyder put into Watchmen, I think it is quite reassuring that a large studio would fund such a difficult and indeed controversial project. Just compare Watchmen to something like The Fantastic Four and the staggering lack of heart and passion that went into that project. Long term, I believe Watchmen will be seen and loved for many generations to come, which I rather doubt so many poor, more profitable superhero films will be. I consider it to be a definitive adaption, and as an example of the genre, one of the most impressive on offer. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. You can contact me on email at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. And you can come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Many thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.